And now, Steve Punt reopens Radio 4's very own Detective Bureau. It's the return of Punt P.I. This is Punt's private eye. I'm not here right now. Please leave a message. Punt, it's Tracy. Listen here, you'll be taking orders from me now. And I've got a baffling one for you. Murder in Hollywood, or should that be homicide? One of the biggest film directors of his day, shot dead. Victim's name, William Desmond Taylor. Trouble is, no one knows who pulled the trigger. I'm signing you to the case. Pack your bags. Your flight leaves this afternoon. At last, I'd got the call. I was off to Tinseltown. And this wasn't any old case. This was murder. M-O-I-D-E-R, murder. Opening scene. The limey detective touches down in sun-drenched L.A. In a montage of shots, we see him cruising down Sunset Boulevard. Sipping martinis under the palm trees, slipping out of his M&S jumper and into the pool at a Beverly Hills hotel. Then, cut to the BBC's accounts department. We see a man in a suit, shaking his head. Then, dissolve to... Gatwick Airport, where the detective is boarding a budget flight. Dublin. To Dublin. Uh, here we go, gate 14. Our deceased director may have met his maker in Hollywood, but he was born in the Emerald Isle. 11E. There we go, in the middle there. And there I hoped to pick up his trail. It was time to bone up on the case. Very interesting. Who was this William Desmond Taylor? Really intriguing. And how had he come to be in the City of Angels and on the wrong end of a bullet? This is a case and a half. For a tale set in the world of early movies, the story was far from black and white. William Desmond Taylor in 1922 was a man who quite literally called the shots, a top Hollywood director. Climbing the ladder alongside the likes of Chaplin, he was in many eyes second only to Cecil B. DeMille. His name was on the credits of 60 silent feature films, including versions of classics like Anne of Green Gables, Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. But the gunshot that rang out on the night of February the 1st, 1922, certainly wasn't silent. There was a darker and more shadowy side to early Hollywood. A jump cut to film noir. On the night in question, Taylor had been visited by a friend, Mabel Normand, a movie legend who often appeared on screen alongside Chaplin. She'd left his bungalow at 7.45pm, her host still very much in the land of the living. But the next morning, Taylor's valet turned up for work and made a shocking discovery. His employer had had a heart attack, or so said the first doctor to attend, quite remarkably failing to notice the bullet hole in Taylor's back. Eventually, some bright spark decided to turn the body over. 
This initial confusion over the cause of death was the first of many irregularities in the story of Taylor's murder. By the time the cops arrived, executives from Paramount Studios were already there, and according to various reports, they were busy burning documents in the fireplace. There were lurid rumours in the press concerning love letters, monogrammed lingerie and mysterious withdrawals of money from Taylor's bank account. The police got to work, but they didn't get far. The story didn't follow the usual script. No murderer was ever unmasked. No judge ever handed down a verdict. It may have been Hollywood, but this was no movie. Over 90 years later, the case remains unsolved. Touching down in the country of Taylor's birth, I hoped that the way to find Taylor's killer was to find out about the man. Could there be something in his past which might indicate why someone would want him dead? Now, looking for the general register office. Now I was on location, I made straight for Dublin's general register office. Here we are. General register office. It was lights, camera, and as much action as you can get while tracing a birth certificate. I'm looking for Declan Roach. I had an appointment with Declan Roach, who'd promised to help me find the crucial document. I'm looking for a birth certificate of a William Taylor. Declan searched his database but couldn't find any record of a William Desmond Taylor. So his actual surname is Tanner. Intriguing. The man's name is actually William Tanner. He changed it himself to Taylor. Right. So he's William Cunningham Dean Tanner. Tanner. Yeah. He was he was not called Taylor. This was the next twist in the plot. And he was born on the 26th of April 1872 in County Carlow in Ireland. Where's Carlow from here? Carlow will be about 65 miles from here, south of Dublin. I think I should head for Carlow. If you see signs for Belfast, you're going in the wrong going direction. Going the wrong way. <laughs> I know that. Declan thought he was joking. Oh, I think I've just gone the wrong way. I should have gone left then. Don't worry, I realised I was going the wrong way well before I reached Belfast. Honest. After my little detour, I was driving through the rain to Carlow. Welcome to County Carlow. What clues would I find there? It doesn't say birthplace of murdered film director. Arriving in the small town of Carlow, I had an appointment with Mark Ivan O'Gorman. This is technically the sunny southeast. <laughs> now don't laugh. That's our no, that's our slogan. Mark Ivan runs an annual festival devoted to the films of the slain director. Is Taylor's story a rather dramatic story? Do people around here know it? By and large, no. It happened so long ago and so far away. But with so many questions unanswered, Mark Ivan agreed to share with me his idea about who done it. The kiss of death theory. Tantalising title. And the star of this plotline, 19-year-old Mary Miles Minter. A former child actress who'd become fanatical about the 49-year-old Taylor. She fell in love with him. Her own father wasn't 
on the scene so she had daddy issues and she had a reputation of either falling for her older director or being exploited by her older director. The theory goes Mary is at her wit's end. It's an unrequited relationship between herself and Taylor. She leaves the house with the gun to emotionally blackmail Taylor. She goes to his house and goes, I'm going to kill myself unless you run away with me. He somehow talks her down. She throws her arms around him and the gun accidentally goes off. The gun goes off, she panics and leaves. Her whereabouts are not accounted for at that time. And it's also kind of convenient that her mother and the district attorney are very close friends. And and her mother owned a gun almost identical to the one Taylor was shot with. And do we know what happened to the gun? The gun was taken back by the granny and it was thrown in a river. Yeah. Off a bridge, I hope. <laughs> Off a bridge and into a river. It yeah. seemed like the perfect Hollywood scenario. The jealous younger lover. The murder weapon hurled to the bottom of a river. The kiss of death theory had everything going for it. Except... Do, do we know that Mary Miles Minter was in the house that night? And uh, No, we don't know she was in the house that night. There was no confession of guilt from Mary Miles Minter. She didn't... No, she doesn't ever admit it. The kiss of death theory is just that, a theory. Minter might be in the frame, but I can't cut and print that. OK, so you can go straight on now and we'll go out the road. Uh... Establishing shot of a car driving out into the Irish countryside. I think it's either... Mark Ivan had promised to show me the house where Taylor was born. I think we've... I think we have passed... It's not exactly on the tourist map. Either one of those two buildings. After a few U-turns, we headed up an unmade track, completely unsignposted except for... Guard dogs. Beware of guard dogs. Never encouraging. Finally, a long way from the main road, we arrived at the house. That wisteria hanging over the front of this 19th century building, beautiful canopies of trees. It's just a very typical sort of large house that you see dotted all over Ireland and sort of place that a lot of Taylor's father's ilk would have lived in. This was where William Tanner, the future William Desmond Taylor, had been born into minor gentry. His father was in the military, but Taylor himself never served. After his departure for America at the turn of the new century, he never returned to Ireland. Taylor's birthplace was idyllic. But it was also private property, and I couldn't help noticing an abandoned car in the corner of the garden. That's the last BBC yeah, radio documentary that tried to... That's a vehicle. I drove back down the narrow lane, only to find a car coming the other way. I, yeah, I don't I know these people. I can't go back. If they asked me what I was doing there, what was I supposed to say? Hello? I'm investigating a murder? Cuts to later that afternoon. We are walking into George Bernardshaw Theatre. Having avoided blowing my cover, I decided to do what they do in the movies and lie low in a cinema. at Soul of Youth. By astonishing coincidence, the matinee performance was a William Desmond Taylor flick. Titles? 
Here's the cast. And a dramatic affair it was too. Another dark night and the time has come for fulfilling the bargain. This woman is selling her baby. What was Taylor's stature in Hollywood? Was, was, was he considered a front-rank director? Yeah, I, I think he was. He was involved in setting up the Motion Pictures Directors Association, which would become the Directors Guild. Now, this whole film is about this the unwanted youth, and we're going to see how he is going to progress through life. Does it end badly? No. It... Oh, so it all comes out fine in the end. I'm pleased about that. The on-screen melodrama had a happy ending, unlike the story of its director. It was time to leave Carlo and head back to Dublin to see if I could find some new leads there. Trinity, a lot of science to Trinity College. No Trinity College. Ah, I wanted a briefing on the early Hollywood era. It's sort of a courtyard through here. And what of that claim that studio executives were burning papers at the crime scene before the cops arrived? Was that possible? Enter Kevin Rocket, Professor of Film Studies. I think it's perfectly possible. Hollywood is extremely powerful at this time. Really, by the end of World War I, the American film industry had become dominant globally. Scandal was really a very serious concern to the producers because this was an enormously profitable industry. But what scandal was it that the studio bosses wanted to cover up? And who would Kevin cast as the gun-wielding villain? Lovelorn ingenue Mary Miles Minter? Or someone else? There's one person who has had an interesting economic stake in Taylor's career, and that is Mary Miles Minter's mother, Mrs Shelby. She was one of those sort of uh, wicked witch mothers who controlled her child actress daughter, Mary, uh, from a very young age. And now, as her daughter in her late teens was becoming more independent, wanting to have an independent relationship, the mother would have had her own personal economy, and indeed her power in relation to her daughter, completely undermined if, say, her Mary Miles Minter married Taylor so in that sort of sense, you can point the finger in that direction as having as strong a motivation, really, as anyone else for the uh, role of murderer. So, not the ingenue, but another character straight from central casting, the over-controlling stage mother. And we know that she did own a gun like the one used to shoot Taylor. On the plane home, I pondered my suspects so far. Minter or Minter's mother? The press had a field day with both, but the evidence was as scant as the negligees allegedly found in Taylor's bedroom. Were the Minters just fall guys or fall gals for a homicide on which the police literally had no clue? Time to call in ballistics. Hello? Oh, hi, is that Mark? Speaking. I was hoping to talk to you about William Desmond Taylor. Ah, uh, indeed. Shall I just fire away, then? Why not? If let's, you'll uh, pardon the pun. Let's... This was no time for wordplay. I was talking to Mark Mastaglio, a forensic firearms consultant of a very high calibre. Well, having read the coroner's report uh, for the inquest, which talks about blackening around the 
the clothing, the entry hole in the clothing. And that would typically be caused by burning propellant and soot. So that means that the end of the gun, the muzzle, is very close indeed to the victim when the gun was discharged, possibly within a couple of inches or even closer. That might support the kiss of death theory, that Taylor was shot in a deadly embrace with Mary Miles Minter. But what about the positioning of the gun? According to the coroner's report, the bullet entered Taylor's body from low down at a steep upward angle. It may be a consequence of maybe a struggle. Um, I believe there is some evidence to suggest that the hole in his jacket did not align with the hole in his vest, right. which would tend to imply either that he had his arms raised or indeed that the jacket was being held or pulled upwards. And one of the things we definitely know is that the gun used was a Smith & Wesson point thirty eight. Yes. Uh, so how common would that have been at this time? Well, it would be incredibly common. Um, it would be one of the, uh, if I can put it this way, it would be one of the brand leaders. So the fact that one of the other suspects, the mother of Mary Miles Minter, is known to have possessed a thirty eight, that doesn't particularly mean anything. I wouldn't put any great significance on that to suggest a link between the two. Hmm, interesting. And there was another fact. The only real witness in the case had reported seeing someone leaving Taylor's bungalow who was between five foot seven and five foot nine. Charlotte Shelby was five foot two. Both the besotted young woman and the controlling mother plot lines weren't playing well with this target audience. It seemed I needed to look for other theories. Taylor had changed his name, but there were plenty of people in Hollywood who'd done that. Was there anything else in Taylor's background that he was concealing? Sent him to Clifton College and had graduated from Oxford. My research showed that Taylor, or rather Tanner, claimed to have attended Clifton College and Oxford University. Was that true? Hello, yes. I'm trying to track down any information I can about someone who I think may be an old Cliftonian. Um, to establish whether or not this person actually ever attended Oxford. There seems to be some Sorry, question. It's in connection with a murder. But it's some time ago. Don't worry about that. Uh, the name would be William Cunningham Dean Tanner, I think. Or it may the be rather helpful people at Clifton and Oxford furnished me with some right. revealing okay. information. So there's no William Tanner. Just to make sure I've got this right, there's, there's no William Tanner uh, or no William Dean Tanner. Right. Neither had any record of a William Tanner attending. That's lovely. Th thank you. Taylor's much. claims were fabrications. Well, thanks a lot. Bye. So, what else was he making up? He's a man whose past is constructed on lies, and maybe there were people trying to take advantage of that. Broadcaster Matthew Sweet is an authority on the age of silent cinema. He is one of those people whose biography slips through your fingers as you try to grab at it. So what in his biography might someone have wanted to take advantage of? He had, and carefully concealed, a first marriage and a child from that marriage. They were abandoned in New York. Any other skeletons in Taylor's closet? Or was he, as some claim, in the closet himself? On top of all that, it seems there were some financial irregularities. We know that William Desmond Taylor was paying amounts of money to somebody. There's some evidence to suggest that large amounts of cash were coming out of his uh, account and going to who knows where. Who knows where, indeed.
And one thing's for sure, Taylor was no stranger to shady company. Enter another member of our cast, the ex-employee with a grudge, Taylor's former secretary. The story of Edward Sands is like something from Patricia Highsmith. Uh, he's like Mr Ripley, Edward Sands. Another man who lied his way into every situation that he seems to have found himself in. A year before Taylor's murder, Sands had simply vanished, and with him, some of the film director's personal belongings. It was a sinister twist. William Desmond Taylor's stash of gold-tipped cigarettes had disappeared and other valuables had gone, and that was Sands. We know that was Sands because he went off, pawned some of these things, very interestingly, under William Desmond Taylor's real name. These tickets have the name Tanner on them. So there's a strange sort of malice in that act and in a way sends a message to Desmond Taylor that seems to be a sort of signal that he knows things about his past. Yes, but what things? And why didn't the police pursue that line of inquiry more vigorously? Because the whole of this case stinks of corruption absolutely stinks. The district attorney came to the investigating officers and said, I'd like you to hand over all the evidence. I'm going to put it in a very safe place, in the safe in my office, from which it mysteriously disappeared. The case was getting hot. If this were a movie, the DA would call me in and have me thrown off the investigation. Corruption or no corruption, with much of the evidence missing, the killer remained apparently unidentified time for a curious cameo from a new character the aging small-time actress margaret gibson had acted alongside taylor in a number of his early films but in 1964 she suddenly confessed to his murder The confession has always been dismissed as deluded deathbed ramblings. Until now. Margaret Gibson could be the crucial twist in the plot. As a character, this L.A. lady was no angel. She was um, involved in a lot of petty crime. She had been arrested for prostitution. She had been arrested for extortion. But was she capable of murder? William Mann, author of Tinseltown, which looks at the Taylor affair. I do believe that Margaret Gibson had an involvement in the crime, but I do believe she was helping to provide names to a blackmailer by the name of Don Osborne. So, to, to tell me about the blackmail ring, we, we, we know this existed, do we? Yes, we do, and, 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 and the reason we do, and thankfully, was that the FBI was tracking their, their movements. So I began making inquiries of the FBI, and lo and behold, there was no information on Taylor or on the Taylor murder, but there was information about Margaret Gibson and about Don Osborne. So I believe that the murder itself was impulsive. I believe that it happened quickly, and I believe that it wasn't necessarily intended to end in murder that night, um, but it may be that Taylor responded angrily and said, I'm not going to pay you, I'm not going to keep, you know, forking over money to you, or there was some other kind of altercation. William believes that the deathbed confession wasn't meant literally. It wasn't Gibson who pulled the trigger, 
but one of blackmailer Don Osborne's associates. I believe the killer was waiting for Taylor when he came back into the house after walking Mabel to the car and was crouching in the in the little alcove where he kept his telephone opposite the front door. This would make sense because this is where someone could hide to um, surprise someone coming through the front door. And if someone is crouching and fires the shot, it would make that exact trajectory through the body. So far, so good. It all made sense. But what's the MacGuffin? What were they blackmailing Taylor about? Well, that's the big question. That, unfortunately, after 100 years, we're, we can't be sure. But there clearly was... Taylor had enough secrets that I do think that we can speculate pretty clearly that among those secrets might have been something that Margaret Gibson knew. So she killed Taylor by virtue of telling Don Osborne whatever it was that was yes. blackmailable. That's right. right. That's right. That's my theory. Would it hold up in a court of law today? The, the evidence is long gone. One of the problems with this case is, as a movie critic might say, that its central character is inconsistent. In some sources, he's gay. In others, he's a womanizer. According to some accounts, he was dealing in drugs. According to others, he was helping friends get off drugs. So how can anyone ever write the definitive script of what happened that night? There was one more expert I'd been trying to get hold of. Hi, is that Bruce? Sure is. Bruce Long has collated more material than anyone else on the Taylor murder. After a lifetime of searching, Bruce has studied all our suspects. So was it the lovelorn ingenue, the controlling mother, the ex-personal secretary with a grudge, the blackmailing small-time actress? Who, as they say, done it? Well, I certainly wouldn't give high degrees of probability to anybody. I put Shelby at about 20% or so, and Sands at about 20%, and those two are really the highest. I would say there's still nearly a 50% chance of it just being somebody totally unknown that we don't know about, we never heard of, because he, Taylor was such a private individual, and he had so many secrets, and there were so many weird things going on around that, around the time of his death. So even with the huge volume of material that you've seen and collected on this, you're not convinced by any of these suspects. You think it could easily be someone that we, we have no idea about. Right, somebody that's just not on the radar at all. Maybe the truth will come out someday, but probably it won't. And that's what makes it interesting. Though he may have shot his last film nearly a century ago, the story of William Desmond Taylor still lacks its final reel. Was it Sinister Sands, Kiss of Death Minter, gun-toting Shelby, blackmailing Gibson? Or is there some unknown extra in the background who didn't even make it into the cast list? Despite never being charged, Shelby and Minter were forever tainted by association with the murder of the man from Carlo who made it to Hollywood. Cue fade to black as the detective closes the case file, shakes his head and returns it to the shelf marked Unsolved. In life and in death, very little is for certain when it comes to the story of William Desmond Taylor. Only one thing is for sure. Someone got away with murder. Murder.
and cut. Punt P.I. was produced by Lawrence Grizel. Tracy was played by Jessica Turner. Next week, Steve's on the trail of a stolen masterpiece. And remember, you can download previous episodes of the series by searching the web for Punt P.I. Download.